This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we hear Jesus talk about his own identity and testimony in the face of those who grapple with his teachings. Yeah, we're going to get a little bit further into John 8 today. Um, just give us the first few verses, but let's just jump right in. I, I only need a few, like usual. Just give me a couple verses here and uh, we'll get we'll get rolling. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All right. I do not. You could double check this, Brent, but I do not believe this is the last time he's going to say I am the light of the world of the great I am statements. I believe he's going to come back and say this again in like John 10 when he shows up at the Feast of Dedication later in the book of John. I think he's going to make that case again which will have a whole nother layer of fun context that we'll talk about. Um, uh, it comes back in John 9. Oh, John 9. Okay. So the next chapter. Yeah. He says, while as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay. Okay. So this is probably the more dominant I am the light of the world statement. We talked about in our original John episode, these I am statements, the way that they're drawing on uh, simultaneously uh, statements and made about Torah and also statements made about pagan god worship. And so, I am the light of the world would have been a statement made by Apollo. Apollo would have been the, the god of light, um, and sometimes even the god of light and darkness, but Apollo would have made that claim about himself. So, Jesus is stepping into that role saying, hey, if you're looking, if you're looking, in John's words, should I say, John is placing Jesus in like, if you're looking for Apollo, I got a better substitute for you. It's actually a, a, a real person, um, a real thing, and it's Jesus. He's the light of the world. On the other hand, if you've got a Jewish audience, uh, that's a statement, you know, Torah is the light of the world. By Torah, we see. We we read God's light by his light. Like, Torah is often referenced as light and the light, and I would even say the light of the world. And people have written me that email since our John episode, wanting to know, like, sources and resources. A lot of those statements— I am not all the way through my bibliography, again, because you all won't quit sending me books to read. But nevertheless, uh, I haven't gotten through all the sources that Ray gave me yet. Um, But a lot of those references come from the Midrash, uh, the Mishnah, the Talmud, often the Talmud. Um, You'll find them in like the Agadah at times, kind of spread all throughout those oral traditions and those kind of things. So um, as I find them, I try to share those sources. I'm sure I've got some sources on my bibliography that might be super helpful from names that we've talked about and quoted before. And when I get there, I will let you know. But one of the things I wanted to point out here is where this lands. And that's a big question, right? And and I haven't heard what Elle did in our last episode yet. Uh, so I don't know exactly what she said. But here's this you know, big question about where where this you see the note there at the beginning of chapter 8 there's this weird section of John John 8 1 through 11 that's not in our earliest manuscripts and so where did that come from uh we had an earlier conversation about the gospel of mark uh Brent you can put that episode what what number was that episode 85 85 we talked about the gospel of mark and one of the things i spent a lot of time uh talking about towards the end of that conversation is the end of the gospel of mark i think the end of the gospel of mark mark 16 i think it's verse 9 and on i think is absolutely not supposed to be in your gospel i think it's a later edition it's not in your earlier manuscripts it seems to be driven completely by church 
uh, by church history, church ecclesiology. Like it doesn't flow well. It doesn't have the right content. That's a total addition by the early church, in my opinion. Not everybody agreed with me. I got some angry emails about that. That's okay. I do not think the end of Mark 16 is legitimate at all. So what about this, Marty? Why are you saying this is and that's not? Well, the content of this is completely different than uh, than Mark 16, and the content of this is completely consistent with um, the, the the gospel content, with the gospel style, maybe not John's style. We're going to talk about that in just a moment, but completely consistent with um, ra- the rabbinic era and what we would expect. There's a bunch of context. Uh, Brent, if you want to link one of the best teachings I've ever heard on that story— I'm sure I haven't heard I haven't heard L's yet. So I'm sure once I hear L's teaching, it will be the second best <laughs> teaching I've ever heard on this story. But one of one of my favorite teachings on this story came from Brad Gray um, when he taught at the church that we were both at years ago at Real Life um, Ministries, uh, Real Life Church in Moscow on the Palouse, and uh, and he did a sermon. <laughs> what, what, Marty? Are you struggling to? <laughs> To find the name of this church that has had like seven names over the seven years I've been here? <laughs> I am. <laughs> but uh um so uh but he did a he did a sermon there titled Written in the Dust, and I just was so, so good at pulling apart the context of where that story is sitting as it's told in John. Uh, where it sits in the festival calendar, why it's relevant, uh, just super good. So we'll link that teaching in the show notes. Definitely worth your time. But here's why I bring that up is because I'm, I want to know when I start hearing John 8, 12 through whatever you just read, Brent, 12, yeah, just 12, verse 12. When I hear 8, 12, um, is that coming on the heels of the adulterous woman story? Or is that coming on the heels of the last verse of chapter 11? Not that it necessarily matters, matters, but it's just a question that I ask as I as I listen to that. There is a pretty good theory. The last verse of chapter 7. The last, yes, chapter 7, whatever I said, sorry. Um, there is a theory out there that I, I absolutely love and I cling to that a lot of the people that taught my teachers believe this. That the Gospels were originally constructed in original forms, and then over the course of those first decades of the church, they got restructured and put into the four Gospels that we have today. And I'm even fine imagining the actual apostles doing that restructuring. It doesn't bother me at all. It doesn't take away from its inspiration or its apostolic authority for me at all. I don't lose any sleep over that. But one of the theories here by a lot of scholars that don't even hold to the reorganization theory, don't even, but there are a lot of people that say this passage probably belonged in a different gospel at some point and was taken out for whatever reason and put into the gospel of John. So it is gospel content and then was inserted into this gospel at this place, which I find to be a fascinating idea and theory. I don't know what that does to people, if that really bothers them or not. Um, but but I do like that. Flusser, uh, Dave Flusser, we've talked about him often. I say Dave as if I know him. David Flusser. <laughs> Dr. David Flusser. Um, the late Dr. David Flusser, amazing Jesus scholar at the, at the university, uh, Hebrew University, um, decades ago. He, he, he believed that this, if I remember right, he believed that that passage would have belonged in maybe what we might think of as Luke and was then taken out of Luke and put in this gospel. 
It's a theory. Who knows? Um, but I, I, I just wonder sometimes, are Jesus' words coming on the heels of that encounter with the woman caught in adultery? Or is that coming on the heels of the very end of chapter 7? But nevertheless. Yeah, it, if you want uh, a, a semi-brief overview of this, I mean, brief in the grand scheme, but it's actually a pretty extensive footnote. At the end of chapter 7 in the NET, that goes through all the different possibilities on where this could be. Um, which specific manuscripts show it in these different places. It's, uh, it's, a, it's pretty extensive, um, but it is relatively brief in the, in the grand scheme. But it's a good introduction to the possibilities. NET coming through in the clutch again. And I, I feel like the source we recommended at the beginning of this series, uh, Interpreting the Gospel of John by Dr. Gary Burge, I, I feel like he touched on this pretty thoroughly. I read a lot of sources on John, but I think it was his that, if my memory serves me correct, it serves me correct. I think it was, I think it was that one. So anyway, so, and, and again, the content of what Jesus says here has that same, when we, when we referenced Alexander Shia earlier, and we talked about, you know, the different theories of the different gospels and how they were used. And we talked about the gospel of John potentially having the theory of, or the theme, excuse me, of illumination. You have this kind of language here. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's it's thick with Essene language. It's very Essene-esque. We've already made that observation earlier in our study of John. It fits that that theme, that thematical, you know, what what John is doing, but it also carries the same tone we've now been looking at since John 3, like this. And, and it's only going to get worse today as we continue to listen to this. Jesus saying, I'm from above, you're from below, I am the light. This is light. This is darkness. That same kind of transcendent, more mystical. I'm not saying it's completely mystical. I'm saying it's more mystical language than, say, the rabbinical mechanics of Pardes. So it's just the way, it's part of the way that John records his story and writes it. And, and we just see that continue. It's not changing, nor would we expect it to, but it's not changing in front of us. Yeah. And possibly a case for this early portion of John 8 not being there. Um, going back to the episode where we talked about the water. So Sukkot closes with ceremonies involving water, but also a ceremony involving light. So Jesus saying, point. I yep. am the light of the world would fit perfectly well with, with that scenario. Well, and as you'll hear Brad Gray, um, and when he talks about that story as well, it's going to fit perfectly with the historical context of what John, if you place the story of the woman caught in adultery in John, it really, it really, really fits amazing. If it was inserted, it was a brilliant insertion by whatever redactor. It wasn't just thrown in there like willy-nilly. It, it's a brilliant place to put that story. Brilliant. Um, so, and I, and I picture John put, if it is put in there, I picture John putting it in there. So whatever you want to do with that, nevertheless, I digress. Uh, should we go on in the text then? Absolutely. Continue. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. Okay, that's interesting. Based on the conversation two episodes ago that we had, where he says, of course you know where I'm from. And the NAT suggested that was more of like you said a sarcastic, like, Oh, yeah, you think you know where I'm from, but you have no idea where I'm from, if you remember that part of our conversation. And it, that that fits what he says here. He says, 
You, you have no idea where I'm from. So you're concerned with how my testimony works in your worldview. I'm, that's not what I'm concerned about. So, which has he already said, Brent, earlier? Didn't we already talk about uh, in another episode? He talked about his own testimony. If I testify about myself, has that come up already? Yes. Uh, John 5. He's already acknowledged the point that they're making, right? So John 5, right. uh, yeah. verse 31. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who tested. So he's already made this point. Like, I, I get it. I know the rules we play by. I know what Torah says. Like, I understand how witnesses and testimony work. That's not what I'm concerned about right now. That's not what I'm even talking about. I'm not trying to give you, like, valid, credible testimony. I'm having a conversation about my identity and an invitation to be a part of the thing that God is up to. Go ahead. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Interesting argument. (laughs) And again, he's not interested in having that, which he basically says as much in that little section. He says, you judge by human standards. I understand how your human standards work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not I'm I'm not interested in that. And you want two witnesses? I'll tell you my two witnesses. And he's not offering this as like a sound legal, like and I I mean legal in a Jewish sense, like a sound legal argument according to Torah. He's simply saying, like, you want two witnesses? Here are my two witnesses. And that my greater point is where I come from, what I'm a part of, the paradigm I'm working out of, and what I'm inviting you into. You keep trying to pull me into this human standard, this worldly paradigm, this worldly metric. You keep trying to pull me into this worldly conversation. I'm inviting you into something better, but you're going to have to leave that other stuff behind if you're interested. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. You know, as we read these things, I keep wondering... Are, there are so many of our listeners that are so good at what they learned in session three when we went through the Gospels. Um, there was a few episodes ago. Let's see, was it a chosen episode? Um, or what was the conversation we were having? Oh, uh, back at uh, chapter five of John, and we were talking to Kevin Chandler, and I made the comment that, you know, 38 only shows up once in Tanakh, and it's the amount of years that they're in the wilderness in the book of Deuteronomy. And we had listeners on our Slack workspace that was like, um, incorrect. 38 shows up in these two other places when it talks about the 38th year of so-and-so's reign. And here's what I see in those passages. And I just, I just love that. That is so encouraging to me, not discouraging that somebody's like, Marty, you're wrong. I, it's so encouraging to watch people take the things that we have all learned together and go, oh, I'm listening and here's what I'm seeing. So sometimes I read through all this stuff and here I am like on a Peshat level, like trying to exegete and make observations about John. And you you see me go after some Pardes every now and then and talk about a Ramez here or there. I love to talk about historical context, but our listeners got it. And just to give you a word of encouragement, when you guys think about these passages and these texts in those way, 
it, it makes me better because it reminds me like I should be think I should be asking that question more because that's what I taught all of you to do and you do it better than I do. So you're now teaching me and I love it. I love it. So even as you read this, Brent, I'm going, man, is that in the text somewhere? Where is, it? is that in the text? Where is that in the text? <laughs> yeah. Which, which part are you thinking specifically uh, sticks out? Just all of these cryptic statements where I'm like, oh, it's all just mystical. It's all just mystical. It's all just mystical. And I'm like, mm. yeah. Or is it also like remesses? Is it, I don't, I can't think of a whole lot of conversation about my father, my father. Like I think about David and Solomon and the Psalms potentially. Father and my son, son and my father. Like, I don't know. I was just wrestling with that as you read all that. I'm like, man, I wonder if there's... Father son remez is going on there that I'm not. It'd be tricky to remez it in a way that you're like, yeah, that's a unique usage. I think that's what John is remezzing, but I'm not asking the question enough. So who knows? Who knows? I love it. Uh, I was thinking about uh, why why John would say, oh, this is in the context of the place where offerings are put. Like, what difference does it make where this is where this conversation is happening? So, oh, man, what a what a great question, Brent Billy. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, questions, no answers. So, but we'll we'll see. So he's in the he's in the court of women. That's where the offerings are. The offering is in what's called the court of women, which isn't directly necessarily about women, although it is the court where Jewish women are allowed. They just had the woman caught in adultery. That is where the lighting of the candelabra takes place. Oh, you are right. You are right. You are right. And they <laughs> they are setting it up. Oh. Brent, that's brilliant. The NET footnotes are right. I, I did not have that insight of my own. Oh, you should have just taken credit for that. Everybody would have been like, go, Brent, go. Um, yeah, no, they are setting up. At the end of Sukkot, that is where they set up the um, – they have these 40-foot – if I understand it correctly, if I remember correctly, there's four, four 40-foot menorahs that they stand up in the court of women – because during the Feast of Dedication, and I, I, I can't figure out, I'm trying to figure out if they start lighting it then or if they just set it up. Because um, I know they light it during Hanukkah, what we would call Hanukkah, what they call the Feast of Dedication in the, in the, in the text. Um, they're definitely going light, to light them then, the, these big, huge menorahs. Or are they, men- and I can't remember if they're menorahs or are they seven branched or nine? Man, you got you got me thinking. But they are standing them up at the very least. This is exactly the time of year where they are putting those up, if not lighting them, when Jesus utters the words, I am the light. Again, and we talked about this in session three, a rabbi's not going to talk about something he can't what, Brent? That he can't see. That he can't see and point to. Like he's got to be able to talk to something physical. He's not going to talk in the abstract. He's going to talk in the concrete. So here he goes to the temple courts while they're setting up these huge menorahs and candelabras to say, I am the light of the world. It's a brilliant play. Obviously, those around him, the Pharisees are challenging him. They get it. They understand what he's saying, and they catch the gravity of what he's trying to teach. But yeah, such great context you reminded me of by making that. Yeah, that that that's probably much more what's going on there. Yeah, I guess I, I had totally forgotten about that till you said it. Man. I guess that is why they would say, because that is where where it sets the context of where that conversation is happening, which leads to the candelabra and the light of the world connection. So, yep, yep, spot on. Way to go, Net and Brent for reading it. But there could there could be some remez 
involved in that? Yeah, possibly. I don't know. Yep. Could be. All right. Uh, once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. A little bit darker <laughs> uh, setting for yeah. for this. <laughs> yeah, he's not messing around here. Previously, it was just like, you're going to look for me and you can't find me. This time, you're going to look for me and you'll die in your sin. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've never really... And again, I don't spend a bunch of time in these three chapters of John because I just... They're just like... They're, they're just not strong in my body of work. They're not strong in my consciousness. I struggle with these three chapters of John, so I don't spend enough time here. But I've never really caught what I feel like over these last few chapters is just a tone, and I could be reading into this, I feel like a tone of exasperation with Jesus. Like, I am just so frustrated with you religious folk that I love so much. You should be so close to what God is doing you should be so devoted and committed to God's program and God's project, and you just don't get it. You're going to die in your sin. And again, I think we hear that phrase through very, very Christian, classical, medieval, systematic theological lens, die in your sin. I'm not sure that's what Jesus uttered. I don't think that's what John would have understood, nor John's audience. This dead in your sin, going to hell no salvation. I don't think that's the tone here, but definitely a, you are just not going to get this. You, you, you are missing what God has been doing and is up to, and you, you are going, you are, you are blind and you're going to stay blind and you're going to miss this. And thinking back to, I think it was, um, I think it was all the way back in Abraham when we first talked about this concept where God is speaking and says, blah, blah, blah. God said, blah, blah, blah. And God said, it's like, well, why would it say, and God said, it's because there's time that has passed. And according to the NET footnotes, once again, saving us here, uh, this phrase, once more, Jesus said to them, indicates that there is some time that has passed from the last thing that he said. Okay, sure. Cool. Yep. It doesn't come right on the heels. It's not one seamless conversation. There is a break of some kind, of some length here. So this made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? <laughs> Last time they were like, is he going to go preach to the Gentiles? We're not going to follow him there. <laughs> now it's like, is he going to commit suicide? Like that's, that's uh, They are trying to figure this out, and they just cannot step into this conversation that Jesus is inviting them into. I, I, that's the tone I sense in Jesus' exasperation, like, you, you're just incapable of seeing this, and you're incapable of having this conversation, and yeah. But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Now, and so again, and, and we always have a conversation, we've talked about God goggles so much that people are like, like getting frustrated with it. So let me rephrase this a little bit. There is a much wider conversation that has been happening for decades, at least a few, I'm going to say three to four, and that's a minimum, about what people, scholarship will often call the historical Jesus. One of those conversations is about Jesus's consciousness. Scholars saying, what does Jesus understand about himself? And that conversation usually does not include an assumption of God goggles. It does not include a divine perspective. Um, 
It's going to it's going to see Jesus more in his human nature that we have often argued for. And from that vantage point, scholarship wrestles with what is what is Jesus's awareness? What does he actually know about his identity? Does he know he's Messiah? People say, well, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah prob- you're probably right. He probably obviously does. But how much does he know about that? And how how much does he know? John seems to make it very, very clear that he is very consciously aware of his identity as God's son, God as his father. I wouldn't even argue that. I'm not going to argue against it. How much of that is literally Jesus and what he said historically? How much of that is John? I'm not interested in trying to figure that out on the podcast. It's just interesting to listen to scholars talk about it. One of the places I read about it is actually a very dated work. So it's from the beginning. We have learned so much in the last 30 years of scholarship. So much. And yet one of the one of the discussions at the very beginning of that age and era was a book called Jesus Within Judaism by James Charlesworth. And it kind of just talked about a it's going to be like jumping in a time machine and going back 30 or 40 years. Cuz he's going to talk about the world that they were just waking up to that we kind of talked about towards the end of session 5. We we talked about the world that they were starting to wake up to, the questions they were starting to ask, and he's writing about that. And you have to realize it's not up to date. It was not written five years ago. It was written, I can't, I don't know if you can look up the copyright date on that when it was actually penned, Brent. It was 1988. Okay, so 1988. Um, I mean, that, that's that's where you're placing this conversation. So it's it's a while ago, and it's at the beginning of this kind of like, scholarly awakening of the Judaism, Second Temple Judaism in the context of Jesus and all that kind of stuff. But one of the things he's got, he has a whole chapter, I think, towards the beginning of that book, talking about Jesus's consciousness and what he's aware of. I don't even think he resolves it with his own position, if I remember right. He just talks about the larger conversation that's taking place, which has only continued to evolve. And obviously, there was the famous Jesus seminar, which people hated and freaked out about, and I get that. Um, there was a lot of things that everybody critiqued about the Jesus Seminar, rightfully so. Um, but when I read this passage in here and I see Jesus saying, "You are from, uh, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe, and I am He. You will indeed die in your sins." That. Most of that scholarship, that's not going to affirm the inspiration of the Scripture. It's not going to affirm the inerrancy of the Scripture. Most of that scholarship that we've talked about before is going to say there's no way that Jesus actually had this conversation. Jesus talked about similar things. This is consistent with the teachings of Jesus, but John is putting those words in Jesus's mouth. I don't necessarily adhere to that. I don't. That's not how I see it or how I look at it or how I understand it, but that's this larger conversation. What I do wrestle with is... Where does this come from, and how much does Jesus know? Because it helps me know what he's referencing when he says this. When he says, I am from, you are from below, I am from above, how much is included in his conscious awareness of his identity? Is he saying, I remember the days I used to sit on the throne right next to my dad in heaven? Um, Or is he simply saying, like, in a much more mystical, like, I'm... I'm coming from a different place. My energy source, my conversation, my illumination, my enlightenment is attached to something, which I, I know I just used a whole bunch of words that make us all nervous. I get that. But what is he saying and how much does he know? And I'm not asking for a bunch of emails answering that question for me. I'm just inviting us into the 
wrestling match. Does that make sense, Brent? Or did I just ramble incoherently for the last five minutes? I think it does make sense. Okay, wonderful. In the sense that we don't really have the answers, but there are lots of questions to consider out of this little passage. Because I think when you hear that paragraph, everybody just assumes one thing or the other. Right. You assume the position you're coming from. You're like, oh yeah, he knows he's from heaven. What does that mean? How much does he... You know, like that's just that's a weird thing to just assume, but I think we just assume it with this like full conscious awareness of where he can't like how much of that did he have because that influences what he means when he says I'm from above. Um and it changes what we hear as we exegete that passage. So it it matters, but um yeah, I'm not interested in answering the question, just bringing it to our attention. Be careful of what you assume when you hear these paragraphs and go, "Well, wait a minute." What do I truly believe he knows in that moment? Where is he speaking? What is he speaking from? Where is he speaking out of? What awareness does he have? It's good. It's a good question to wrestle with. Well, it's definitely one of those things, uh, like most of scripture, really, if I'm being honest, where it's a lullaby effect. And I've just heard this passage my whole life. And yep. yeah, I have those assumptions that are there and I just kind of read over it without giving any thought to it. So we are inviting you to to give it some thought. Absolutely. Wherever you end up landing. And just reiterate in case anybody's like confused or nervous. Uh, we, we've said many times, I completely believe in the inspiration and authority of the scripture. And the divinity of Jesus. And and the divinity of Jesus. Like theologically, I'm all aligned there. I, I do have a ton of questions about how all of that works. Um, but I I don't do not do not hear me questioning like the inspiration of the text or anything. I'm I'm firmly uh completely sold out on that. Um, but nevertheless, it's, it doesn't stop me from asking the questions and figuring out what that means as far as how inspiration works. So there you go. Yeah, and there's there's really no way that we can ever know for sure because we are not God and we cannot function as God uh in human form or like there's there's no way for us to actually experience that directly and our ability to understand it is limited in some capacity but it is like it is interesting and i think useful to try to figure out how did this actually function what was jesus doing i think mr charlesworth is actually going to make that exact argument if i remember correctly in his book so well said okay well that'll save me the time reading it i guess <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay. Back to the text. Who are you? They asked just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Jesus replied, I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. And then, I mean, just those last two paragraphs, just more of the same. Uh, the same question I wrestle with. Um, what is Jesus' self-awareness? Um, what, is it, what is his self-conceptualization? What, is he, what, what does he understand? And where are those words coming from? Uh, if you want a fun mental exercise, put those words in the, not in an inspired way. <laughs> Just put those words in somebody else's mouth and say, if somebody else were to say that, how do you hear that? Because you don't just hear, if it's not Jesus, you don't hear them saying, you don't just make the same assumptions about what they're saying about divinity and, you know, heavenly origins and all that kind of stuff. So as you toy with those different ideas, what does that mean with our understanding of who Jesus is and what he speaks into and speaks out of? So more of the same stuff there for me. 
I don't know if I have any great observations out of those last two paragraphs. It's more of the, it's more of the same. It's more of the same. I'm interested in the next episode and getting into this whole children of Abraham, children of the devil. <laughs> That's got to be a fun conversation. Well, I do like how this closes. Like, you know, we had the we had the John six moment: eat my flesh, drink my blood, and uh, everybody left him basically. And so now we have this moment where Jesus is like, "Oh, okay, I kind of like what he's saying again." And and so you, he has this new set of followers who are believing in him. And I don't, I don't know if these people have that context of John six where they say, "Yeah, we heard that. We weren't really sure, but now that we've heard this, we're on board." Yeah, sure. Or if it's people who have come back, or if it's just entirely new people who have never heard anything else before from Jesus. Jesus. So it's a great question. I can't imagine this being that uh, stunning of an argument. He's won that John six crowd over again with all this cryptic, mystical, I'm from above stuff. And they're like, all right, never mind all that flesh and blood stuff. But uh, who knows? Maybe. I mean, maybe. Yeah. If they're, if they're thinking like, oh, we thought it was literal flesh and blood, but now he's arguing about how he's from above and this other thing. And so maybe he wasn't as literal as we thought he was. Yeah. So yeah, could be. Could be. Okay. I'm, I hear you. I like that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's this episode, I think, right? Yeah, I think that's it. Okay. Well, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me at EIBCB. Uh, as we record, there's only a single copy left of Jesus Within Judaism. So uh, I'm going to say Ben, Ben Casperson, <laughs> you're not allowed to buy this book. Let somebody else get it. <laughs> I'm sure he's already got a copy. So... Uh, well, there were two, and then Ben got a hold of one. So look at <laughs> All right. Well, you can find more details about the show at bamonasapshop.com. So thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. The uh, the one the one advantage that the listeners have over Ben is that Ben is literally broke and cannot afford to buy any more books. So, well, he said that before, and somehow he still managed to. I know somehow, <laughs> somehow he does. We're gonna visit his house and find out that he has sold his fridge so that he can buy more books. That's right. Food doesn't have to be cold. I can get non-perishable food. <laughs>